Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carolyn Yeager bringing you the April 27, 2015 edition of the Heretics Hour. Thanks for donations from Jim from Arizona and John from New York City. I believe, I suspect, that John is our caller from Thursday's final Table Talk program. It was really nice of him to call in, and he said he would try to send some money. I do recall that. And you know what? He, I think he did. I think that's him. Uh, and $50, too. Both John and Jim sent $50, which is very, very nice of them and certainly helps me out a lot. Speaking of Thursday's final Table Talk program, I thought I would start out tonight by giving you some of the material that I left out then about Richard Carrier's complaints about the translations. It was just too much to try to cover, and you know, this, in this, this one part only in Thursday's show, but I hated to kind of uh, forget about it since I did work on it, <clears throat> and I think it might be useful for future reference. So the first thing I want to do is to uh, say a few words about Heinrich Heim, who took notes. And he was uh, born in June 1900 in Munich, and he died in the same month in 1988 in Munich, making him 88 years old at the time of his death. And according to German historian Clemens Wollmhals, he says, from a source-critical point of view, the most reliable version of the table talks is Werner Jachmann's edition of 1980. Well, that's the one that uh, has the high. All right, I guess I'm back on again. I lost my connection, and I uh, Skype wasn't getting it back, and I uh, I finally decided to hang up on Skype, and then I had to wait until the Skype call-in logo came back on at Blog Talk, and I do believe I'm connected now. So let me see here. All right. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. That hasn't ever happened for a long time. I was telling you about uh, Heinrich Heim, and uh, and that uh, and I want to tell you that Heim came from a family of notable lawyers. He being a lawyer also, and from 1939 to 1943, he worked as an aide to Bormann, which later led to his notable work recording. Hitler's informal conversations. Martin Bormann put him on to this job since he was he was one of Bormann he was he was in Bormann's employee, one of his helpers, and he said that uh, in a conversation with David well actually David Irving did an interview with Heinrich Heim at one point, and uh, he told Irving that he had sat at a table next to Hitler writing discreet notes throughout the meal. He he was at a separate table, as we just said, and he, then he himself typed them up immediately afterwards, and uh, Borman, who was his chief, then signed each record uh, and put them away. So that's how it worked. And after the war, these binders, they were all put in ring binders. There was quite a number of them, and they had been rescued by Borman's widow after uh, a, a little period of time. She knew about them. She got she got hold of them and saved them and she they came then after her she actually I believe she sold them to a uh, Swiss man because she didn't see how she was going to be able to uh, 
you know, keep them or assure that they'd, they'd be uh, taken care of. And so she met this man, or she knew this man. She trusted him. He was a French-Swiss, Francois Genoux. He had been a National Socialist. He was a fan of, a supporter of the Third Reich. And he said he would uh, take care of them and see that they got published or by a good publisher. I don't know what he said to her, actually. But anyway, uh, she she turned them over to him. And he's the one who people think, oh, he did something. You know, he might have messed with them because he had, simply because he had the opportunity. No other reason. There's no reason to to blame him for that, except there's, well, there is one other thing, and that is that after he... Uh, after all this took place, he then later wrote his own version of what would be the 1945 Table Talk, and he tried to publish that as a as a real as a legitimate thing, and he was uh, kind of found out about found out, um, but not right away. And what he said to to David Irving, according to Irving, was uh, well, yeah, uh, this this didn't come from Hitler, but it's exactly what he would have said, don't you think? And this doesn't make for a very good impression of Francois Genoux, um, but there's no reason to believe that he changed anything in the uh, real table talk notes. In any case, that's the reason to suspect him uh, of, of funny business, if you think there is any funny business. Anyway, Francois Genoux sold... Uh, table talk notebooks to the publisher Wiedenfeld, who was an Austrian refugee in Britain, for, uh, it is most uh, mostly thought to have been about 40,000 pounds, 20,000 he wanted for himself, and he directed uh, the publisher Wiedenfeld to make out a check for Paula Hitler, Paula Hitler, for 20,000. And he did uh, see that Paula Hitler, Hitler's sister, uh, received that quite large sum of money because she was not in very good, uh, very prosperous means at that time. So that was very good of him. He really was a good man. He was a sincere National Socialist. And I guess he thought that he was so familiar with the table talks and maybe was sorry that they didn't go beyond a few weeks in 1944 that he should add to them and <laughs> make right up to the close to the time of Hitler's death, he, he had it all worked out there. And I guess they were pretty good, but they weren't real. They weren't genuine. So in any case, the some of the historians and critics, and they always seem to be British, but Michael Burley contrasted Hitler's public pronouncements on Christianity with those in Table Talk, you know, his other his other sayings. Uh, and he suggested that Hitler's real religious views were a mixture of materialist biology, a faux Nietzschean contempt for core as distinct from secondary Christian values, and a visceral anti-clericalism. Well, you know, this last part, the anti-clericalism, comes from, his, from Hitler's experiences with the church leaders when they uh, decided to oppose him on some of his policies, and he found them not not living up to the concordat or the agreements that he made with them in their in his mind, and they had decided, I guess, that he hadn't lived up on his end. 
and lived up to them on his end, and so they they didn't they didn't have this this agreement wasn't working any longer. But anyway, it made Hitler very somewhat bitter against the the church bishops and both Catholic and Protestant. But to say that he uh, had a faux Nietzschean contempt for Christianity, uh, for Christian values is what they say here, for Christian values, is really wrong. In the first place, Hitler was not Nietzschean at all, and he was not a materialist. He was not an atheist, um, and he didn't. He was not against Christian values, but Christian dogma. It was Christian dogma that he didn't like. So uh, I don't think much of Michael Burley's um, description there, uh, but Richard Evans is another very well-known British philosopher, um, British historian. Uh, as probably a lot of people recognize his name. And he also reiterated the view that Nazism, and, you know, the, to call it Nazism, it's just so, you know, they can't call it National Socialism. They refuse to do that. And uh, they they can't call it Hitler's views. Why not just say, if he means Hitler's views, and there's a difference between National Socialism and Hitler's personal views, but they just throw this stuff around. They're really very unprofessional, these Ph.D., high-level historians. He says that Nazism, what, as I just said, we don't know what that is, but was secular, scientific, and anti-religious in outlook in the last, he said this in, the, one of his, in his last book. I would say that most Germans were unaware of Hitler's anti-Christian views because he basically spoke and presented himself in public as a nominal Christian. Uh, so there was never, and he never formally left the church either. And I think he did this on purpose. I mean, he knew if he had made a decision to break with the church personally, well, for, for first it wouldn't do any good, and also it would cause a whole lot of talk and uh, upset and distraction and so on. So why should he do it? He never did it. And it also might have been a gesture to his mother. But people, most of the Germans considered that he was uh, Catholic. And uh, if he didn't attend attend church, he wasn't a very good Catholic. But uh, he still he still was. And, and he never gave the churches any trouble. And the churches continued to always get their money from the state. So a lot of this a lot of these things that these people write seem silly to me. And um, Richard, now getting to Richard Carrier, Richard Carrier maintains that much of Trevor Roper's English edition is actually a verbatim translation of Genou's French and not uh, from the original German. Now, that's just plain ridiculous, as I said on Thursday. And he says this because uh, he thinks that they might have been altered. I mean, it has to be might. He doesn't know, but he says he, he thinks that they were altered by Francois Genoux as part of a deliberate forgery to enhance Hitler's views. Now, he has no proof for that, but that's his, uh, that's his idea that he wants to put forth. He calls it to, to make Hitler appear anti-Christian, as he says Genoux did, more anti-Christian than he really was, was to enhance his views, to enhance Hitler. Because Carrier is an atheist, and he dislikes Christianity. He's a big, big critic of the whole historic Jesus and the whole thing. 
So he doesn't want Hitler to be the same as he is. He, he wants to be different. He wants Hitler on the other side. So he thinks that to make uh, that any effort to make Hitler anti-Christian is uh, is making Hitler look better, and uh, that's why he thinks that they did it. <clears throat> At least that's what what he says. And so he, the work that he supposedly did, that uh, so many of these um, white nationalists who are Christians uh, bring forward whenever they want to argue for the for the fact that table talk is not is not really uh, out of Hitler's words at all, either in whole or in part. He and his and a partner that he had working with him, this is Carrier, tra- retranslated. 12 quotations from Hitler's table talk in the that the one that's in the library of congress in a way to show Hitler as a christian well i don't know which what version is in the library of congress and they never say but it's obviously the what he took his from was the picker the picker notes and picker henry picker only took notes for about 4 months in 1942 from, I don't know, what was it, uh, through September or something like that, from early summer to September. And then Heim came back. But he he chose these quotations according to what's written from uh, Picker's original German text that is in the uh, Library of Congress, I guess. And he compared them to uh, Genoux's French translation. And he said that uh, what he found was that, that that Janu's version is a poor translation. I don't even know what Janu's version is exactly. But you see, this is not none of this is ever very clear. But we do have some examples of what he thinks that these these uh, these quotes um, that this uh, translation, which is Picker's original German text, uh, and Janu's. French translation show that they were translated from Genou, I guess. The Cameron and Stevens. No, I, I, you know, I'm still left here. Uh, I, I only wanted to point out that he took his uh, quotations, uh, his Hitler quotations from Picker's, not from Heim, not from Heim's uh, notes, but only from Picker's notes. And there's two examples here that I want to go into. They don't show at all that it's a bad translation in fact what it shows me is that it's carrier who who does the poor translation <laughs> from the german it's it's uh that's the best i can see from it it's carrier who does the the, the worst translation so the first example is uh, cameron in cameron stevens it says uh the words are the time in which we live is the appearance of the collapse of the matter and in uh, Carrier says that this should be the time in which we live has the appearance of the collapse of this idea. So, all right, uh, the whole the whole paragraph, which in which this sentence occurs, reads as follows: I have never found pleasure at, translated. I have never found pleasure in maltreating others, even if I know it isn't possible to maintain oneself in the world without force life is granted only to those who fight the hardest it is the law of life defend yourself 
The time in which we live has the appearance of the collapse of this idea. It can still take 100 or 200 years. I am sorry that like Moses, I can only see the promised land from a distance. Well, now here we have um, the sentence that matters here is the time in which we live has the appearance of the collapse of this idea. So he's saying that uh, you have to fight to live and that in our time, uh, this idea has lost its value or this idea, he's calling it, has collapsed. People aren't, um, people aren't living according to this idea. And he says it can still take 100 or 200 years for this idea to come back, you know, in fashion, say, in use. And then he says, well, I'm sorry that like Moses, I, I won't see it, you know. I only see it from a distance. I, I'll never, I won't be there when this occurs. I won't be around when this, when this happens. But he's expecting, according to what he's saying right here, that this idea that the law of life is that those who fight the hardest are the ones who, who win, uh, will come back. And he would like to see it, but, and now the fact that he says like Moses doesn't mean that he's comparing himself to Moses or feeling uh, religious about it, but they had been talking about Moses, he had been talking about Moses and some things like that previous to this, and so that's why he adds that he's sorry that like Moses he can only see it from a distance or he's very familiar pretty familiar with the Bible so he knows that Moses died before they got to the promised land and anyway um, saying that uh, the, the time in which we live has the appearance of the collapse of this idea how how is that um, different how does that make Hitler more more Christian than to say that uh, the time in which we live is the appearance of the collapse of the matter. And which one is, is correct? Is, is is correct because I looked at the uh, at the German. It, in fact, it's right here. Is, um, ist, it's Die uh, Zeit in der wir leben. The time in which we live is the Erscheinung, whatever it is, and, and on, you know, would be is the appearance of the collapse of uh, of the idea so he, the german is is and that's how it's uh it is uh translated by cameron stevens but carrier changes it from is to um has it has the appearance and not is the appearance but how big of a difference is that and and how does that change anything i really find it ridiculous you know these two examples that are used should be the best that carrier had or the ones that make it most clear why this is an issue but I sure can't see that uh, that there's any issue here and the next one I'll, I'll give you the other one too because it shows that they're very similar and this one is um, the sentence that is uh, at issue in the middle of a paragraph says I shall never come personally to terms with the Christian lie now this is supposed to be one of the terrible things that he said Hitler said and that um, shows uh, how much he dislikes Christianity by calling it a lie so 
I put that through Google Translate. They they come out with it. One should never personally add such a lie. And the German does indicate he's not saying I. For, for he is saying one or man, mankind or something. So I asked Hanning Scott to translate it. And uh, he translated the whole paragraph, but I'll just stick with this one sentence. The whole paragraph is kind of interesting, but Hanning's translation says, one may never individually go along with such a lie. And then, uh, so we've got uh, Cameron and Stevens. I, see, I think they are wrong on this one, but I don't know how serious it is. You know, they changed it to I shall. Uh, Google says one should, and Hanning says one may. And Carrier translates it, one should never personally accept such a lie. Now, what the lie they're talking about is the, the lie of the Christian doctrine. I don't know how else better to describe it. It's like it's Christian doctrine that, that he's speaking of. So whether he says, uh, I won't come to terms with it, or one should never go along with such a lie, you know, whether it's me or whether it's people in general. And the word... Now, here's where Carrier is absolutely wrong in his translation when he uses accept. He says one should never personally accept such a lie. Looking into these words, the word is um, bügen. The word for that is uh, to put, whether it's to uh, add to, or to, to accept or to add. Actually, the, the translation for bügen is put. And fuga is add. So it would be to add or to put such a lie, to put forth such a lie. One should not put forth such a lie, is what he's saying. And that's that would be the correct translation. Whereas Carrier changed it to accept. And that is not one of the choices for fugen. F-U-E-G-E-N. Uh, accept is the word, uh, the first selection for accept is uh, accept I never heard of it. Accept and then a bunch of other choices for accept, but none of them are fugen or fuga. So uh, he, in both of these cases, we see Carrier mistranslating and uh, one of the words in order to make it different. So you know, nobody, there is nobody that agrees with Carrier, except maybe a few friends of his. But most uh, most historians have concluded, as it's always said, that table talk is authentic. And there's this person, Derek Hastings, who has written more about it than a lot of them. And he uh, is uh, he rejects Carrier's thesis, saying it's an attempt to undermine the reliability of the anti-Christian statements. And this uh, very well-known Stigman Gall also looked into it a lot and at, put, wrote a lot about what Carrier wrote uh, in his own book. He gave it a real fair hearing, you know. He, and But he ultimately says that the table talks are authentic and he disagrees with Carrier. So nobody agrees with Carrier and he's pretty much dropped it. Uh, so I just want you to know that when people come along, uh, when someone comes along and says, oh, that table talk, you can't believe anything here. This is what Richard Carrier, a well-known historian, has written about it. And uh, you can uh, copy and paste his whole pages by him. 
sounding very authoritative. And you wouldn't know if you don't, you know, if you don't an analyze it yourself or you don't know, even if you do know some German, if you don't really sit down and study it all, um, you know, look at it carefully, you'll just say, oh, you know, because he keeps putting in these, uh, he just continues to say that this is wrong and that's wrong and this has been redone, this has been poorly translated and so on. And he's just pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And so you can, uh, you can come back with that if you run into that problem. And that's the last I have to say about that, but I do want to make that very clear. Now, I uh, want to talk a little about a few things about white, we white people, European people, and white nationalism sort of on the sidelines there. Uh, and I saw an, what I thought was an interesting article by Patrick Buchanan just yesterday. This is probably his latest one. And he writes, uh, this is titled, Pat Buchanan, Is the European Union Dying? Uh, in an essay, this is, I'm going to just make a few little quotes from his much longer article. And he wrote, uh, in an essay, the EU experiment has failed. Bruce Thornton of Hoover Institution makes the case that the verdict is in, the dream is dead, the EU is unraveling. One Europe is finished. Buchanan writes, for a nation to survive, its women must produce on average 2.1 children. Europe has not seen that high a fertility rate in 40 years. Today, it is down to 1.6 children. Europeans are an aging, shrinking, disappearing, dying race, he writes. A fundamental question has troubled European unification since the Treaty of Rome in 1957, writes Thornton. He's back to quoting Thornton. What comprises the collective beliefs of and values that can form the foundation of a genuine European-wide community? That's the question. What, what, what are the collective beliefs that can form a genuine European-wide community? And he asked also, what is it that all Europeans believe? Um, they have a loss, they've lost religious belief, which is the religious belief of Europe was Christian. And that's what's been lost. That's the only religious belief that's been lost. <clears throat> and uh, they, now, they now are, in, in, well, what's been replaced, they've been replaced by political religion. He says, communism, fascism, Nazism. There's that Nazism again. They are substitute gods that failed. Well, I disagree there because fascism and Nazism did not fail. Uh, they were wiped out. You know, they were destroyed by those who, by communism and those who, and Zionism. Um, and um, what's the other one? Um, one world governmentism, so uh, internationalism. So that it's wrong to say that they failed. And so often people are saying, well, lately I've been seeing a lot of uh, comments that people say, oh, well, you know, Hitler failed uh, and uh, his national socialism failed. 
And now he has to come up with something different. Well, you know, it didn't fail. It was very successful. And neither did fascism fail. But they were destroyed by, by their enemies who were bigger than they were. And let's see now. Uh, is this, uh, this is, um, I think, uh, Buchanan quoting, maybe quoting the Hoover guy. Or it's Buchanan, but anyway. Nor, <coughs> he says, um, nor has secular social democracy succeeded. Uh, it has not provided the people with a transcendent principle that justifies sacrifice for the greater good or even gives people a reason to reproduce. So Europe has installed since World War II secular social democracy. We know that. And, uh, but that hasn't, hasn't motivated people to, uh, to sacrifice or to work for something good for them for their entire race I guess and, and uh, doesn't hasn't made them want to reproduce either so Buchanan says pacifism beckons every major European nation in NATO Britain France Germany and then he includes Italy and Poland too will see defense spending in 2015 below two percent of GDP so they don't want to spend the money on defense uh, they don't want to go to war. They don't want to fight anything. They want peace. They want prosperity. Uh, they want to just continue on, things to continue on this way. So Buchanan says Christianity gave Europe its faith, its identity, purpose, and will to conquer and convert the world. Christianity created Europe. This is Buchan in Buchanan's view. And the death of Christianity leaves the continent with no unifying principle save a watery commitment to democracy and la dolce vita. So, uh, I believe he's right about that. There is no motivation and there's no unifying principle in Europe except this idea of democracy and the good life. You know, we're going to live the good life. And the Europeans certainly started living the good life. Uh, of course, it took a while for the Eastern Europeans to be able to do that. And they were under the communist uh, iron curtain. But um, that's what the Western Europeans got used to, and that's what they want. Now, he, he continues a little more. He says, uh, or I've got a little more of what he wrote. The descendants of fallen away European Christians of the 19th and 20th centuries are finding their new faith in old tribal and national identities, says Buchanan. Less and less does multiculturalism look like the wave of the future. Well, he had started talking about the nationalist parties, and mostly he mentions UKIP, Britain's UKIP, and uh, France's Front National. And then he, he wants to include Germany, obviously, as the big three of the European Union, you know, that you can't do without. If any one of these three, Britain, France, or Germany, would would pull out, well, that would uh, destroy the whole thing. Uh, but, um, so he mentions Pegida. Well, Pegida is not a anything major, and it doesn't even, I don't even know if it's going to continue, and it's not very strong, and 
it's not like the others. So, but that's what he says anyway, because uh, obviously he wanted to show this movement in these three big uh, European key nations. And so he he's uh, saying he thinks that this looks like the wave of the future, nationalism. And, you know, it, he says you see it in, uh, in Russia and in everywhere, you know, all other places too, a lot of places in Europe. Well, I say that uh, nationalism will not unify Europe, as it certainly can't be unified under white nationalists, you see. How is, how is uh, national, the independent nationalism going to unify Europe? unless it would do it unless they could unify themselves after they take over their uh, somebody's here listening after they take over their their own nations if they can't even do that well once they did that how are they going to they might try to cooperate with one another but will they all get elected i don't see i don't see this uh but uh, people talk in terms of white nationalism in Europe as as uh, one big white united group. In my opinion, that will never happen. That will never happen. Under Hitler, it was possible with a strong German dominance. Under Adolf Hitler, at that time, it was possible to unite Europe because you would have a strong German control over everything and, and holding it together. But now, Germans are wimpy they're, uh, they're, they're, even though they're prosperous and productive, but they're so guilt-ridden, you know, and they're unwilling to really lead anything. They, they don't feel they're worthy of it. They don't want the responsibility. They had so much trouble before. Um, so you can't, you know, Germans are not, uh, are not there to do that, and the others can't do it. And, and that brings me to the next story I want to go into, which is, um, that yesterday, German President Gauck, uh, he thanks Britain for liberation of the camps. He thanked Brit- Britain. Yesterday, they had a uh, commemoration in three places in Europe uh, commemorating the uh, liberation of the Nazi camps, the Nazi concentration camps, as of the 70th anniversary. And, of course, it was all organized by the um, World Jewish Congress, or the, uh, yeah, and Ronald Lauder. So, just like the one in in January for um, Eastern Europe, now and for Poland, and so on, now this is the one for germ- camps in Germany, and also they included one, the one and only supposed uh, camp in, in uh, France, and the and a camp in Croatia. So uh, these, but it was not a very big deal. There's one story for it, thank goodness. And now it's just all forgotten about. Although there will be the uh, May um, commemoration of the end of the war, but this one was just for the somehow the opening up of the concentration camps. And at the site of Bergen-Belsen, that was where one of them took place in Germany. The president of the World Jewish Congress, Ronald Lauder, was there speaking. He recalled the shock of the images and so on and blah, blah. The bulldozers and he makes a big deal out of all that. But the second, the other one was at uh, 
Jasenovac might be. It's uh, in Croatia. The uh, camp there that's supposed to have been so so bad where supposedly mostly Serbs and Jews were victimized there and killed and blah, blah, blah. So that that went on. And, uh, and then in France, uh, President Francois Hollande was right there, as he always is, and he not only was looking, you know, leading the, the memorialization at the Struthof camp in the Alsace region, close to Germany, which is supposedly also called the uh, Natzweiler, Natzweiler Struthof uh, camp, where they said a lot of things took place that it, it didn't. They, they, now they say there's a gas chamber there, and there's a picture of Oland and somebody else in the looking around at the pipes or something where it's supposed to be the gas chamber. And you know, you just think how these, how these grown men, these leaders of these nations, they're the presidents and prime ministers and so on of these nations. There's a few more I'm going to mention. Um, go along with all this. They don't even begin to ask a question. They, they're not going to, and they certainly don't want to, and they want to believe it, and they're totally, um, oh, they're totally uh, co-opted into it. And, and Hollande takes the opportunity to preach and lecture about racism and anti-Semitism, saying the worst could yet return you know, if we just if we don't get rid of anti-Semitism, all this bad, worse of what we've already had in the past could return again, and um, that's predictable. But the worst part is German President Joachim Gauck, uh, who has to go to all of these things. And of course, this year being the 70th anniversary, he he's been kept pretty busy, and he's got that fixed expression on his face, looking so uh, serious and but also contrite and sad and, um, well, just stony-like, you know, but, but like he's got a lot of feeling about it. Anyway, he, ha- he says that the British, he paid tribute to the British soldiers who freed the camp and restored humanity to the country, to his country. He paid tribute. He thanked the British soldiers for freeing Bergen-Belsen, freeing up that camp, and restoring humanity to his country, um, and of course they uh, they, they were they were evil thugs in that camp. The British were, and they didn't have any idea what was really going on there, and they misunderstood and just de- decided they knew, and they they uh, mistreated everybody there, and the 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 people that were running the camp that were trying to turn it over to them and. And get their help with the with the problems that were going on there, the typhus problems and so on. And they just uh, they, they the British were awful there, just awful. And Gauck goes on to say to them in his speech, with their actions and their approach, you know, the British, the wonderful British, with their actions and approach, driven by humanity, a new epic began. People, the former master race, would see that human sympathy can indeed be learned, said Gauck. You just almost want to vomit when you think of, uh, this is the the, uh, president of Germany today. Of course, it's it's not, he's not the real political leader. 
he's more ceremonial, but still, um, you know, he just always talks this way. He has no problem. Of course, he's very left. He's a left winger. They they like all this stuff. But he goes on. He said more. He said, as such, they, meaning the British, were the shining counterexample to the advancing Germans, who in the years before conquered, subjugated, enslaved, and plundered Europe. Wow. What a sniveling traitor, you know. And this is this is what we have to deal with. So who is there to lead in Europe if there would be, a, you know, a nationalist movement of any kind that would get going? I don't know. Now, um, let's see who was saying that. Okay, Hollande was in Notzweiler, as I said, and he says, knowledge of history doesn't protect us from the worst. Anti-Semitism and racism still exist. He is constantly on that theme and trying to pass laws in France that will, um, that will be more strict than what, what they already have. We must act to protect those who may still be victims today. So those few people, you know. And then he brings up the migrants. And that's what they talked about at this thing on Sunday that I'm telling you about. He evoked the thousands of migrants attempting the perilous journey across the Mediterranean to reach Europe from Africa and the Middle East. The EU's president, Donald Tusk, was there. Naturally, he's Polish. He's a former Polish prime minister. The Poles have a big stake in, in remembering all of these German crimes. And, the par- and Martin Schultz, who is the EU parliamentary leader, he was there, and the other one was uh, Latvian Prime Minister uh, Strauyuma. She she goes to a lot of things. I, I think she was there because the Poles were there. I think I think the Latvians and the Poles are kind of close. They're they're close together, and uh, so she's a little she's a short woman, a little stout, a little bit stout. Uh, so uh, she was there with uh, in France with Tusk and Hollande, and uh, but that, then this article ended with a very revealing statement, without realizing it. But it said, uh, back in Bergen-Belsen, there is a little left. There is little left of the Nazi camp, torched by British troops shortly after it was liberated on April fifteenth, nineteen forty-five to prevent the spread of deadly diseases. You see, they had to burn, they had to practically burn down the camp because there was a typhus epidemic there and the typhus was uh, was so dangerous for everybody. That's why, and that's they say that here, and yet they want you to think that, uh, that all this was being done on purpose, all this t- uh, death. Bring, making these people's lives. Um, well, this person that um, I'm done with that. All right, this person who uh, who was on the line uh, left. I don't know if they wanted me to answer their call or not because the the mic never lit up, only the listening part. So it's kind of difficult if this press one thing is not working. But if this person wants to say something, they're welcome to call back again. And uh, I'll click on their mic to bring them on online. I'm ha- I'm happy to have any callers tonight, so they're they're welcome to do that. All right, today uh, 
Another thing that happened today in, in the USA is that Loretta Lynch was sworn in as the new Attorney General. <clears throat> Loretta Lynch is black, and uh, she is taking the place of, oh, what's his name? I can't think of his name now, our former one. And so I look at the picture, you know, um, that is on the in the with the news story, and there's uh, three or four. No, there's three black men and her. That makes four, and one white guy. That was Joe Biden, who was uh, who was uh, swearing her in. So you know, and this is one of my complaints that that we see we have to look at black people so much as though as though they're an equal portion of this country. Well, they're still a, a minority, but who knows? Uh, they're getting probably getting closer to, to being e- even. They're not really close to being even, but they are getting closer. And so, but we see um, black faces whenever you look anywhere on the Internet, going through the news, um, black, 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 and in the... In the advertisements and so on, black, black, black. And, you know, I'm not black and I don't want to look at black people. And I know they say black people had to look at white people all those years. But you know what? This is a white country. And it's still a white country based on white people who, who founded it and started it and, and built it and so on. It's it's not a black country. You know, where you expect, you think, well, they have every right to be seen as much as as we do. Well, I don't agree with that. And this, these are the things that affect me. You know, I can stay away from um, other races as much as possible if I don't want to be around them. But uh, they're, they're moving in more and more, closing in more and more, and you, you, have to be, uh, you, you have to be exposed to all of that. So who is going to do something for the white race. I think that not white nationalists, I don't believe in white nationalism. It doesn't make sense to me. Of course, I've said this before. I'm always trying to say it in a different way. It might make uh, make more of an impression. (laughs) But uh, white is not something to define people with. I realize that there there are white people and I'm happy. As I was just saying, I, I don't like I don't like having to look at black people all the time. I want to look at white people. So if I have a you know, a neighbor that I don't really hardly know but uh he's a white person and it turns out he's a he's a Czech or something or he's a um you know, a Hungarian ethnic Hungarian or or a Russian or something, but if he's white and if he's uh, quiet, whatever, then um, then I have no problem. I'm glad he's there. But I'm still saying that um, we need to we need to preserve our ethnicities. And white nationalism seems to think that white is all it takes for people to get along just fine together. But I say there's too much disparity in IQ and in temperament, in cultural values, among white people. But I think that uh, Western European whites are pretty uh, congenial together, and Eastern European whites are pretty congenial together. But I don't see that uh, 
breaking down all those barriers is a, is a good idea. Now, um, some thoughts that I had based on this. Uh, yesterday, waking up, as I wake up in the morning and I and I'm half asleep still and I'm thinking, say, about the radio program and I'm thinking of different ideas and approaches and um, then more as I wake up, more and more thoughts come into my mind. So that's this is what was going on. And uh, I was uh, thinking that Hitler's National Socialism is the only path that can save the white race and culture. And I've said this before, people don't agree with me, of course. And yet I just can't see... Um, where uh, where there's anything better because uh, there's never been any other that has been successful. No program, no white people's program has been truly successful except um, Hitler's uh, National Socialism. Well, yeah, you had the British coming to the United States, but that was a, a brand new country. But it didn't, didn't take long before they started mixing people, uh, non-white people in with, with themselves. So uh, that didn't work either. Now, those who say, as I already alluded to earlier, that Hitler failed, uh, well, they failed to get it because Hitler succeeded. He did not fail. But his fellow whites in other nations failed. And they're still failing. And, you know, we're failing because we won't look to that, to that successful, that success story and... Um, repeat, continue to follow it and model ourselves after that and build on that. I don't see any other way that will work. And you know what? If somebody would come up with one, well, then I could say, well, that Carolyn Yeager doesn't know what she's talking about. But, you know, nobody comes up with one. That's That's what bothers me. And that's why I feel so, that things look so hopeless because, uh, when you look around to see what whites are doing, well, there's a few people I really uh, admire, but they're not going to change the world. I'll say that. And they're too old to do it, too, at the, the ones that I'm looking up to. So this brings me to the fact that I want to say a few words about the latest entertainment at the Daily Stormer. It's not something I really want to talk about, but it, things have taken a turn that I thought, well, you know, it's, I'd like to get a few words in on this. Uh, you know, Andrew Anglin, in my opinion, has turned out to be a disaster. Now, I used to know him pretty well, and I, I you know, he was a lot, very likable person. I don't know, uh, he's, uh, he's the kind of person, I think, who has to be, uh, on the edge and appear to be the most radical in the movement and therefore um, he just keeps moving, looking for something new, some new way to go. He also might be uh, fairly changeable in that he gets bored with things and he has to come up, he comes up with something new and but also might be to keep the interest up in his website which has turned out to be... Uh, his whole life, so to speak, and he's, his whole ego and persona is wrapped up in it. 
But I predicted in a comment on his site, or I wasn't really making a prediction, it just came out this way, that it was at least six months ago, could have been a year ago for all I know. Time goes by so fast. But I, I said that he was uh, inevitably going to crash or something like that. Crash and burn. I don't know if I used those words, but he was going to fall, and there was no, no way it was to avoid it because of uh, the way he was. And, and I would just uh, I was just going to watch it happen. People took that as a kind of a cruel statement and too you know too unkind. But I didn't mean it that way. I just think thought it was inevitable that he was going to self destruct, and he is doing so. I think now if he doesn't, then I'll have to eat my words. But I I really think uh, he is in the process of of coming uh, of self destructing, and even his sight is coming apart technically, having a lot of technical difficulties there, it seems. Uh, now, I, uh, here's a phrase I stole from a book I'm reading right now, but it seems to fit. And it's this, Andrew seems to want to become a pop culture phenomenon. He wants to be taken seriously, see, but he also is so attracted to pop culture, and he wants to uh, present himself in that way, too, and be a big hit in that world. And since it is a cultural product made to be consumed, what he's what he's doing, you know, primarily either by youth or by adults who think like kids, he features stock characters uh, and um, like comic book characters. Human psychology is kept to a bare minimum, and the typical narrative draws a sharp and simple line between good and evil. Heroes and villains are easily recognizable, and their acts are always consistent with their identities. Well, I was going to write a blog post titled something like The Awkward Adolescent Attitudes of Andrew Anglin, but I, I know that I don't want to uh, get involved and, and have to reply and respond to what people are writing you know, are responding to me about in this, and I'm always telling myself that uh, it really is none of my business what goes on. And it isn't, you know, and uh, I didn't care, and I don't care, except that he's going so far with it on this uh, anti-woman thing. It's almost like a caricature. It's like a comic book, uh, and it's hard to fathom uh, where he thinks he's going with it, you know. So I thought I'd say a few things. You know, I think that he wants uh, he wants attention, and uh, he is uh, he was happy that someone wrote a new blog about him last week, and that was uh, Matt Parrott who wrote something, and then Andrew wrote a very long response to it. He said he he wrote an elaborate defense. For himself, and it was very mild criticism, but it was from Matt Parrott at Trad Youth, and he's been um, Andrew has been um, you know saying good things about Trad Youth, but I don't think he knows Matt Parrott. Now Matt Parrott is no friend of mine, and I've had my own um, run-ins and disagreements with him, so I'm not I'm not here to uh, defend Matt Parrott, but I think that. Uh, Andrew has overreacted because he wants to make a big deal out of it. So uh, Parrot wrote this, and, that, and Andrew took offense at. 
he said, but Anglin's, and he was even praising, you know, agreeing with Anglin in the beginning of this paragraph. He says, but Anglin's correct on a fundamental point. Our work is implicitly male at this stage, and we can't afford to waste time trying to make it more comfortable for or inclusive of women. Predictably, he goes astray, meaning Andrew, in his application of this point. For the same reason he, Anglin, always misses the mark, because his approach is ultimately secular, modern, and biologically reductionist. Well, Parrot always make, tries to sound very uh, wordy, but Andrew takes this as an insult or as a, as a reason to uh, have to respond and show that Parrot is wrong about this instead of just letting it go. He's not saying that much. And, he, and so he wrote this long line-by-line line reply. And either in this reply or in a second one that he put on his site, he, he said some things, and I've got some quotes here I want to go through. For me, the term feminine traditionalist project, this is Andrew, conjures up imagery of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, a radical Marxist group which hid behind a facade of alleged Christian tradition. Uh, then, after he writes this, uh, someone calls him on it saying that the uh, WCTU wasn't Marxist and they, they never thought why was he calling it Marxist. So Andrew uh, does his usual thing by saying, oh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> he didn't understand what I meant. Uh, which is, he, he says, sorry, I didn't mean that as a literal conspiracy, merely that their position positions were progressively Marxist while they claimed traditional Christianity. Well, he's still saying that the position of these uh, Christian temperance women was Marxist. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, so uh, this this is what he always does. Whenever anybody disagrees with him, he always and they've got a point, you know, and he can't really answer it. He always says, uh, "Well, you misunderstood. That's not what I meant. I meant something else. I'm really saying something else." And he then covers that. But you know. Uh, these these Christian temperance union women, uh, they were anti-alcohol. That's what they were. And why do you think Andrew should really move permanently to Russia? That's where he belongs. He'd be happier there. You won't have any of these women there uh, being anti-alcohol there. Especially since he has, uh, oh well, I'm not going to say go there now. Um, the solution... Uh, then Andrew says, is to do away with the concept that there is such a thing as pro-white women and accept that women are not political creatures and that if a woman is claiming to be pro-white, she is after something. She is obviously actually saying, I'm looking for a man. Are you, are any of you that man? More likely than not, she would be of the, I'm a hard woman to handle. I'm outspoken and opinionated. And you need to be a real man to be able to tame me. So he knows, boy, Andrew thinks he really knows women. And, you know, he's just, he goes goes through all this stuff uh, saying uh, why women are, uh, how women think and what they, what they want and so on. And he says uh, that this kind of a woman is the worst variety of woman, a modern phenomenon which has crawled up out of the sewer of the feminist project, 
And then he puts in parentheses, then again, she might be okay and genuinely looking for a man with strength, but I don't personally care. Well, uh, now, you know, he's like, he's telling women where they where they belong and where they don't belong. and But then he says, whatever it is that they might, even if ones might be okay and genuinely just looking for a good man, well, he doesn't really care. He doesn't care about them at all. Uh, he's he's uh, from going from caring about women so very much he's gone to not caring at all about them. And then he says, <clears throat> uh, I have engaged in neither disrespect or driving out. I think uh, Parrot referred to him doing that, disrespecting women and driving women out of the movement. And Andrew said, I have engaged in neither disrespect or driving out. I have unemotionally stated my positions and backed them up as as well as I could. Well, let me tell you that he, for him to say he is neither disrespect, he's not disrespected women. When I saw that article that had menstrual syndrome daughter in the headline, I was really, I could hardly believe it. I was shocked at it. Oh, my God. He's really done it now. What the heck is that? And actually... It was the title of that article, which was a couple of weeks ago, was Father Le Pen Steps Down, Hands Over Empire to Menstrual Syndrome Daughter. So he's talking about Marine Le Pen, a mature woman, the most successful anti-immigration politician in Europe, and who he has been supporting and been speaking well of up until her father came out with his really wrong-headed statements and caused her a problem there and uh, she stepped right up and uh, put a stop to it. Well, that didn't sit. And then Andrew had already started his his, uh, new uh, campaign about no women. And so he puts up, he doesn't like her anymore. He's now attacking Marine Le Pen. But to call her, use that term menstrual toward her, or toward any woman is really, really the lowest thing I can come up with. Truly, I've never, I have never seen anything that bad. Of all the things he's written and and done, I've never. There's nothing that that matches that. That's the worst, the worst of all. And this was on uh, April 13th, 2015. This article came out, and he had with it the image of one of Walt Disney's witch characters, which he's taken to showing women as witches and so on. Uh, and he titles it, subtitles it, Marine Le Pen, Le Wicked Witch of France, and says that the bird on her shoulder is a rat Jew. It's this, um, one of these cartoon witches with a bird on her shoulder. Well, what is the purpose of that, you know? What is the purpose of that except to rant and, and get attention? I don't know. Some of the men like it. Some of them don't. I think I agree with uh, Matt Parrott there that he's making a mistake in what he's doing, but it doesn't bother me any. I'm like him about the women. No, I'm, I could care less, you know, what he's doing. But it's, uh, it's entertainment, I'll say that. Uh, his tendency to extremism. Now, I want to bring that up. He has a tendency always to go to extremism and oversimplification. Now, here's an example, and it's from the same same article. 
said, you know, he's answering, uh, this very long answer to Matt Parrott. He says, there's absolutely nothing. It's right there, you see, absolutely nothing. Can't possibly be true, but there's absolutely nothing in this article. That he means Matt's article, which serves to forward a discussion on the topic this article was ostensibly written to address, which is my own view on gender roles. So what Matt wrote um, in this article about Andrew's views on gender roles uh, contains absolutely nothing which would, which would serve to forward the discussion. Then he puts in parentheses, truly, this single sentence could have been my entire response to this essay. You see, well, if that single sentence could have been his entire response, why didn't he leave it at that? And why didn't he go on to write a point to answer everything that Parrott wrote point by point if there was nothing there that uh, forwarded the discussion? So he's contradicting himself there pretty badly in making wiping out, but just crossing out what he says. He goes on, all throughout history, up until the last hundred years, white women were expected to behave as Asian women presently behave, or they would have been subjected to physical discipline. Wow. This sentence didn't follow the previous one. These, these are just sentences I picked out. All throughout history, up until the last hundred years, so that was... Uh, at, uh, in 1915, things changed. Well, okay, that's the beginning of uh, World War One, and women became more uh, outspoken at that time. Uh, white women, but up until then, he says, up until that 1915, white women were expected to behave as Asian women presently behave, or they would have been physically disciplined. Well, I'm not sure that is not... Not true at all. And and why is he he is comparing white women to the detriment of Asian women, which certainly uh, leads one to consider to remember his fondness for Asian women. It's showing there, and he can't cover it up because he's obviously he has been more and more pointing, uh, indicating his approval of Asian women, and some have said that he's currently in a relationship with an Asian girlfriend. And when I read something like this, you know, I have to think that's probably true or it's very credible, credible anyway, when he writes like this. Um, and I will never forget his, uh, I wish I still had it. I think I deleted it, uh, that I had it for a while. His post on that African 15-year-old girl, probably, uh, just a young Girl. She looked older, but you can't tell, you see, with these Africans. Uh, and that he uh, posted on some kind of a forum or discussion place um, a few years back. It couldn't have been that long back because he hasn't been around that long. <clears throat> but it was a very, very African Congo, you know, from the middle of Africa, young, uh, young girl, um, who was all decorated up with beads and necklaces and so on. And I think she had some scarring on her body that, that they do on purpose as a sign of beauty, but I might, that might be, I might have it mixed up with something else. But she had these very protruding, conical-shaped breasts, 
standing straight out. Of course, she was naked from the waist up. Um, and they came straight out to a point, you know, and uh, that was that was the reason that Andrew, uh, that's, that's what he liked about it. And he was saying to the a person he was writing to, don't tell me that you don't want, that that doesn't make you want to grab hold of those big, beautiful breasts or those big breasts or something like that. Boy, it sure does me, and I don't believe that, you, you know, that you would want. So he was, he thought that African girl was hot. You know, um, she sure didn't have a pretty face, but she, I guess you'd have to say, she, from a male point of view, I don't know, she had a nice body. But, you know, to think that at that time he would, he would think it was desirable to, to put his body uh, pressed up against hers and carry on with, uh, with whatever he'd carry on with um, and stick his face in those breasts or whatever. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I just, I'm just turned off by black skin. I couldn't possibly, never in my life would I, could I get uh, close like that to a black person, a black man or a woman. I don't know, particularly if they're as black as she was. You know, she was really black. Um, and so that's just a, you know, the fact that he didn't have a problem with that and he always preferred uh, non-white girls and he prefers young ones too, very young. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's still his problem. That has to be still his problem and why he can't uh, work this, why he can't work it out as a real white nationalist as he's been trying, he's tried to become. He goes on and says uh, later, well, this is his conclusion. In conclusion, I found Matt Parrott's essay highly disappointing, given that it came across as so fundamentally dishonest, failing to address any of my points. Any? Any of his points? I think that's not possible. That's another, these are another examples of his uh, extremism and oversimplification. They failed to address any of his points Avoiding the core concept of my anti-feminist presentation, well, what is the core? What is the core concept of that? You no, know, I don't know. Um, distorting what I said for the purpose of making it easy to attack. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's attackable because what he says is being distorted. I don't think I didn't notice anything being distorted, and I'm not distorting anything he says now. But he, this is his, this is his response all the time when he's criticized that the other person is wrong. They haven't taken, they haven't understood what he's saying. They haven't addressed what he's actually said. They blah blah blah. I found this to be the case all the way back to when he had the website Total Fascism. He's always done it this way, and he's also, I guess, what he considers the insult maybe is. Being called a misogynist, um, Parrot used the word misogynist toward him, and he considers that a, a bad insult, unless it was something else. But uh, he really feels that, that he got he was insulted, and look how how he talks about other people. You know, but he doesn't uh, think they should feel insulted, I guess. And this idea about feminism too, it might come up uh, in a little uh, later, but you know, he he has. He has taken to using the word feminine, feminist and feminism for women, everything to do with women. 
uh, white women, you know. And every white woman is a feminist. Every every concern for what what women think or what women, you know, what women might feel or or want for themselves, whatever, that's all feminist. And everything is feminist, which is a bad word to Andrew and his uh, followers. Uh, that's a very bad word, the worst word of all. And that's what he, he has taken that, he has put that word in place for every everything to do with women or if you'd say woman or anything about women. It's all feminist. Then he finally says, Mr. Parrott is experiencing a bit of cognitive dissonance, attempting to find some middle ground between tradition, which he speaks quite highly of, and his own Marxist programming, which he probably has a hard time admitting he still suffers from. <laughs> well, I thought, well, I think maybe Andrew Anglin suffers from some Marxist prior Marxist programming. But I, like I say, I'm not going to, I'm not defending Matt Parrott. Because I don't even know what he stands for. He's he's left uh, countercurrents, I guess, for good, and some time back, and he's just working with uh, Christian youth and uh, traditionalism. He's always big on that. He always was. So, you know, I don't I don't know, but um, I don't I never noticed he's being he was Marxist. Now it seems like Andrew is is seeing Marxism. Everything that he opposes him, he calls it Marxist now. This is also simplistic and, you know, just pretty stupid, which is why I'm saying that, you know, I believe he is self-destructing. He's, where is he going to go from here? You know, where can he go from here? And then John Friend shows up. John Friend has not commented, and, you know, they were estranged, John and Andrew, so to speak, you know, and, um, and they, John has never, I've never seen a comment by him on there, although I'm not saying that he hasn't, maybe, and, and maybe he used to comment, probably, in the beginning, uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I can't say for sure, but certainly hasn't been there for a long time. But this brought him out, and he writes, uh, Damn, Andrew, when I first read Matt's piece, I thought it was good. But I have to say, you nailed it here. I'm having a very hard time disagreeing with anything you wrote in response to his piece. These are subjects I've never really thought too much about, but now I see their significance and importance. Um, I'm looking forward to Matt's response. And after a day and a half, Andrew replied um, very cautiously, Thanks, John. Good to hear from you. Matt's response will definitely be interesting. Well, Andrew was talking about Matt's response from the beginning, but I don't, to him, and he's he's hoping for it, but I don't see why Matt has to respond. He might not. Why should he? Uh, but everybody wants to see a big discussion going on, and Andrew is hoping that some other people would also join in. You know, not me, some of these guys, uh, white nationalist guys would continue so they could have a big discussion on uh, on feminism. That's what, that's what Andrew calls it. He thinks he's talking about feminism and uh, why it's so bad and what to do about it. So uh, I don't know that there will be any response. And I don't know where, it, where it's going from here, but um, I want to read another comment by Andrew that I think is... Uh, just sad. It's so sad. 
this was on April 24th on his site, a slut forward slash shallow feminist, same thing really, he says, is definitely probably going to be more suited to a traditional role than a woman pretending to be a political activist. Sluts are just confused women acting out and demanding authority in their lives on a very base level. Well, this is just the beginning of it. But, you know, uh, Andrew has been writing about women for a long time, actually. It's, it's been one of his favorite subjects. Even on uh, total fascism, yes, he would write about what women should do and what they shouldn't do. And, and he's always thinking, though, in terms of young women, women of childbearing age, women who, uh, you know, men are interested in. And Andrew has always been interested in a girl, a girl, a girl, not a woman, from age 15 to 18, really. Uh, that's basically his age bracket. He he doesn't want anyone any older than that. 20 would be the absolute uh, upper limit. And so he, he, he doesn't know anything about these are girls that don't know and have don't know what they are yet you know but and they don't want him he hasn't been able to find a a girl or a woman uh in all his travels over there and going through eastern europe and so on that would act and behave the way he would insist and that he would like enough um so he's had no success on that for that reason and maybe other reasons, I don't think he's attractive at all. I don't think he's the kind of a man that women uh, go for. I really don't, unless you're maybe a real, uh, you know, hard up or something. Because I just don't think women are attracted to him. And I was going to say that a long time ago. Well, I'm getting more personal than I intended to. I shouldn't. But I always said, no, don't say that. You know, I always held back. But I've always believed it for a long time now that, that he won't get he won't get this white woman that he says he wants. He'll never get her, and that's what he's finally learned, and that's why he's partly why he's doing this, and he's got a lot of men following him who maybe have the same experience, you know, and so they they jump on this kind of bandwagon too, and really I don't have any any uh, it's no skin off my back, you know, it's no it's not a problem for me what these guys are doing. I, I just so why am I talking about it? Well, because it's it's uh, reflects on the white movement and the white race and the you know uh, the possibilities for a white future. That's why, and I don't see that there's anything intelligent going on out there. That's why I say call for a return to Adolf Hitler in a, in a real way because there's no other no other model or anything to follow that would lead us anywhere good. It's just. Uh, it's um, these men are um, so he's anyway he goes on let me let me continue what he says here uh, after calling uh, calling women a sluts he likes to call them sluts he said I think it is stupid the way men complain about oh I don't want a woman who's had 200 dicks and then he says uh, what difference does it really make in real terms I can't see how it matters she obviously did it for a reason which is understandable, did what? Had 200 dicks for a reason, which is understandable, he says. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I can't imagine caring. I guess insecure men, insecure men may think, uh, maybe think, well, she's going to be comparing my sexual performance 
to all these other men, and what if I don't stack up? Well, firstly, women do that a lot less than a man would imagine, as they are sexually stimulated by emotion, first and foremost. And secondly, who cares what a woman thinks of your sexual performance? Well, you know, um, I may be an old woman now, but I can certainly say that I never thought like that in my entire life about comparing a man's sexual performance with others. Uh, I just think that the way these guys think and are talking about women now, I suppose women have changed some from when I was a young woman and a, and a younger woman. But it's, um, you know, you don't, you continue living and being a woman past the age of 20, you know. <laughs> these guys think that's about the, that's about it, I guess. But they're, um, their whole idea seems to be so, um, I can't, I'm not coming up with the right word, not sarcastic, but um, cynical. Their whole idea is so cynical of, of how they're looking at, at women. Just because there's pictures that you can find in, the, you know, spring break down in Florida and uh, all kinds of things of, with white women out partying and stuff. There's, I, I think it's disgusting, and there's way too much of it. But that doesn't mean that the majority of white women and girls are doing that. I don't think so, uh, although there are far too many, and far probably it's far too much of an influence and maybe is growing. But this is not the answer to what to do about it. And then, then anyway, he says, um, well, that was it. Oh, yeah, he says, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't ever try and date a Nazi woman unless she was interested solely because her father or ex-lover was involved. Well, he used to want a, a Nazi woman. And at one time, he thought some young girl who sent him a picture of herself in a Nazi t-shirt was the perfect wife for him. And he really was serious about it. And he thought... She wouldn't, though, ever give her give him her name and address. So uh, he, I guess he couldn't convince her that she was the perfect wife for him. But she was quite young, but he thought she was at that time because she was a Nazi. But now he doesn't want that. He wants just some dumb... Uh, he doesn't want anybody, I don't think. Uh, he doesn't want to be bothered. Well, anyway, then there's this horrible commenter named Thanatos who responded to apparently a a woman's a young woman's I don't know how young but comment in a comment to what Andrew had written back to uh, Matt Parrott and this Thanatos then said a lot of weird things like um, I don't I'm not going to read them all but uh, she she says uh she says, perhaps there are women who would be happy to serve you like a maid. And then he starts quibbling over what maid means and, and tries to make out that she's, you know, not smart enough because uh, she doesn't know that a maid used to be a young a young woman, a young maiden, and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's so stupid. And then she says she thinks that in the best relationship, the couple are able to talk to each other. And his answer is... Um, it is women that need to flap their lips constantly in order to avoid feelings of discomfort. We also don't need a partner who does 10% of the work and reaps 80 to 90% of the rewards. Uh, that's the way, you know, it's always, if a woman is talking, she's flapping her lips. You know, and if she's, and 
and and uh, if she's in a partnership, she's only doing ten percent of the work, and the man is doing uh, of the other ninety percent. But she's reaping ninety percent of the rewards, stuff like that, which is not the way it really is at all. Really isn't. But um, and then then she says, well, but one wants to know if if one is welcome or not. And he says, you're not welcome to tell men. You're welcome to come here and read and comment, but you're not welcome to tell men how to behave or decide the policy of this site. Now, he goes on in these long answers. He answers everything she said and goes on and on, uh, writing very uh, uh, unfriendly and attacking her uh, for what she's saying and going into all kinds of other issues. And speaking for Andrew, one wonders if maybe Andrew is, is behind some of these. But I don't see how he can do so much writing, but... If, if he would be behind some of these comments that comment names, I never saw Thanatos on there before, but uh, he's uh, either a new one or I just never saw him. And she says, uh, most but most women want to explore life just like any man. And he says, uh, men don't want to do that. Men want to construct the things which you are exploring. If men were just like women, the obverse of what you are arguing, then there'd be nothing to explore and you'd be eaten by the grizzly or lion or something before you could explore it anyway. So that's what they're always saying on there now, that women are just going to be killed and attacked when all these Muslims come and when all these blacks rise up and they're not going to have white men to protect them. Well, I just like to know what white men are doing about this now before it happens because they're not going to be able to protect them then either. I mean, what are they talking about? Who are they protecting? It's just, that's another problem, is that uh, what are white nationalists doing besides talking to each other? What what are they doing uh, about preventing anything? So don't talk, don't say that you're doing it all when you're not doing what needs to be done at all. Then this guy says to her, Seeing as how we've, we men have been working on understanding women since 3500 B.C., and women haven't even expressed an interest in finding out who we are fundamentally as men or what we want out of women and out of life, perhaps you know you should be working on doing that instead of making recommendations to men. Does that make any sense? Uh, what is wrong with these guys over there? Well, he says um, one he says, women haven't even expressed a passing interest in meeting us one six million of the way here. Is that is that true? Obviously not. Ever. Ever. This does sound like Andrew is in, is in, in that uh, extreme uh, oversimplification and over uh, what I said before. That's, that's the way he writes. All they've done is take whatever we offered them and conspire behind our back with our enemies and amongst themselves to fuck us out of whatever we had left. Ah, yeah. The only thing we need is for women to have babies and feed them and take care of them when they are young. And in in another place, these men are so unwilling to have real relationships with uh, real women. And I understand the pitfalls and the dangers in today's society for that. I do. I have some experiences with uh, women uh, leaving their husbands and people in my family and so on uh, because the, the man was a family member 
and it's it's pretty terrible. But then they, they partly their fault too because they allowed it to happen. They allowed the woman to have that much freedom, and and they didn't even get married. They had children without getting married, and uh, and then there was no uh, the woman wasn't that committed. So, uh, but they they went along with it just because they're unwilling to. You know, that's that's today's generation, I guess. At one point, someone suggested to Andrew that, you know, maybe we should think about cloning instead of uh, making children with women. Uh, why don't we just clone ourselves? And Andrew actually said seriously back, well, that's a very good idea. I think we should look into it. So who's going to, when you clone, do you clone an adult person or do you clone? You clone an adult person like yourself, or do you clone a a child? You clone you you clone some genes, some uh, cells, and it turns into a baby. Well, then who's going to take care of the baby and and you know all of that? Well, you know, test tube babies, huh? Okay, then you don't need uh, you don't need women. Well, that's their answer. We're we're in bad shape here. Very bad shape. Now I know I've got to uh, move on. I didn't. I there's a lot more I could. That's interesting. Very interesting. But I really think I've said enough about this. Well, okay. My last thoughts about this is that uh, um, I've been complaining for a while that Andrew uses all this Adolf Hitler imagery and National Socialist imagery, and uh, he talks about Mein Kampf and so on. He calls himself a Nazi, and he want, loves to show pictures of SS men and make out like these guys who are on his website and writing comments are, that's the model for them and, and for him, and that's what they're going to be, you know, and come on, men, stand up and fight or something like that, he'll say, as though these posters on there or anything like that or they can create anything like that um it's so uh what bothers me is that he takes then these positions and also he has taken such a position of such a fan, being such a fan of vladimir putin and everything that he does and then he wants to call putin the, the czar the, the uh the king of the russians and so on and uh, and and he follows him, and he he uh, all he does well. He just does a lot of strange stuff, and a lot of anti-German stuff, really. And then he wants to uh, pretend and and use all this National Socialist and uh, World War II German soldiers imagery. And I I I resent it that he's doing that. I don't think he should do it. He doesn't have any right to it. And, and now I would say that he has left. Adolf Hitler and, and National Socialism and Mein Kampf and all of that behind and moved to white male supremacy and traditionalism and the Bible. Oh, and he's been into the Bible for a while. He doesn't say much about it, but he's, uh, he, seems, he, he seems to accept both the Old and the New Testament. So, uh, and he's got his best, his best friend there, Sven Longshanks, who is someone who is so dishonest, and he doesn't, he's not probably personally dishonest, but in talking about these issues, he'll say anything, no matter how wrong it is, 
and and not worry about it if in order to to bolster his case that's what he does and andrew does that to some extent but he's much smarter than sven so he doesn't do it to the extent that sven does a lot of it just out of ignorance because he thinks he can say oh blah blah this and that uh is so without checking it out and without knowing he thinks he can just say it and then maybe the person will won't know any better but uh, when they do know better, and then they tell him what a, how wrong he is, he just walks away and doesn't doesn't uh, respond or defend himself or say, oh, well, I, I'm sorry, I was mistaken or anything like that. He just disappears. That's that's the way things go there. I haven't listened to any of Sven's uh, readings of German National Socialism because I don't like to hear. German things read with the British accent, which most of it is in a British accent. Uh, I just don't like that. So those are my uh, that's so that's part of why I am bringing this stuff up because I uh, the 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 way that um, Andrew and his site uses uh, the idea that they are somehow Nazis. They never say National Socialists, but they you know. And and promote Adolf Hitler while at the same time, and then he said, "Okay, I have to say this." Yeah, he said, "I didn't write that down," but he said in there that he thinks that he or he answered someone in a comment that he has he doesn't think his ideas about his latest and most recent ideas about women are any different from those that were held in uh, National Socialist policy. In National Socialist Germany, he thinks it's. He says the times have changed, so some things might have come out differently, or it's only because the times have changed. But, but basically, what I'm espousing, what I'm saying, is exactly the same as what they said and what they did, what they believed. Well, he's wrong about that, as he's wrong about most most things. Um, he's very wrong about that because they didn't believe in calling their women sluts, and they didn't believe in uh, saying that it only you only need uh, one woman for ten men. Uh, you know, every every ten men only needs one woman, so you can get rid of a lot of women. You don't need them all. He didn't. He just didn't have that idea that women should never speak. And of course, uh, th- this is a this is an issue where a lot of things could be said. But I will certainly uh, can certainly argue and find lots of examples that contradict the fact that he says his his view on this is exactly the same. See, this is what I, I resent that he is, and I resent this from other people too, who want to take German National Socialism and say that they um, are spokespeople for it or they uh, re- it relates to them. They want, they want to take it and wrap themselves in it because it looks good and get the aura of all of that without it without it, um, being authentically deserving to do so, without really being connected to it. He's really not connected to it at all. And the only thing he's ever done, I think, is read Mein Kampf. I mean, he doesn't know that much about it. And Savannah's trying to learn about it by reading all these th- books and or articles and things that he's reading. But he's never going to really get it either. So that, this is what uh, is at the bottom of my um, what bothers me about what 
what they're doing. I don't care what they do if they just leave National Socialism alone. And if they leave uh, Hitler alone, they can say he was a great man and all of that. But to act like they're representatives of that same thing, while at the same time they're representatives of uh, Vladimir Putin, just doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't fit together in my mind. So I'm going to go now to uh, this article on, Russian, on the Russian bikers, which uh, I was happy that they were stopped at the Polish border which the Poles promised they there's some good things that the Poles are doing here. So these, uh, you know, these bikers, these uh, motorcyclists group from uh, Russia, and they're very big backers and supporters of Vladimir Putin. That's fine. That's fine. They wanted to ride from Moscow on a kind of a long route through a lot of countries and end up in Berlin for the May 9th. Uh, victory celebration of the Red Army over the Wehrmacht and the Waffen-SS and all the others that were trying to defend, still wanting to defend Germany and defend uh, Adolf Hitler in his headquarters in the Reichskanzler. So this this disgusting idea that they want, that these Russians want to go representing the glory of the Red Army and go to go to be in Berlin to celebrate that with what? With their German friends or something who would welcome them, the ones in the Green Party and the communists that are there for this for the defeat of Germany in the capital of Germany? Does it's it's uh, it's sick to begin with. Except that you have people like President Gauck, uh, who uh, are so busy talking about how how fortunate Germans are that the Red Army came in and liberated them. But they don't all talk like that. And I am happy. I was happy to read, I'll go to that right away, that the German government, it says in today's article, has also expressed unease at the bikers and said they would not be welcome. German Foreign Ministry spokesman Martin Schaefer said that Germany had decided to revoke the Schengen visas of a small number of people after the government concluded that there are some people we believe to be in the leadership of the Night Wolves who we do not believe are pursuing a legitimate aim with their actions in Germany. Well, they have to, they have to put it in terms of, uh, we think these people might be spies, you know, they might be coming here to, uh, you know, as uh, they might be security risks or something. But they can't just say, we don't want you damn people celebrating a Red Army victory in our capital. No, they can't do that, unfortunately. But anyway, back to the beginning of the story. Um, there was uh, 15 motorcyclists arrived at the Polish border. They tried to arrive at a small little, you know, place. That, but they were, Poland was ready for them, and they had probably had the entire border uh, alerted. And uh, 10 of them had visas and they wanted to uh, enter. And the other five said they were just riding along until, you know, to see them off. So only, there was only 10 of them who tried to enter. And the Poles uh, spent three hours looking over all their, pap- their papers, uh, searching their, everything they had, <laughs> searching through everything, and then told them, sorry, no, you are not allowed to cross into Poland. 
and they put a big mark on their on their um, you know those little books you have uh, and uh, because they're not they're not uh, you know in the European Union so they don't have a right to go in, into into Europe wherever they want to go so they uh, they were denied here's the thing they wanted to travel across Eastern Europe to honor the Red Army soldiers who died as they and Western allies defeated Hitler's Germany, uh, visiting their graves and other war sites. Their aim was to arrive in Berlin to mark the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II on May 9th. See, why, why should they be there doing that in the enemy country? How many people... Uh, when they celebrate their war victories, go to the defeated country to celebrate it. Have you ever heard of that? I have never heard of it, and I don't think uh, it, it's. I think it's uh, sick. It's really disgusting. And but these guys, uh, the the head biker, said he was very disappointed. This is lawlessness, he says. We're, but he says we're not going to give up. We're going to we're going to find a way in. We're going to be in Berlin on May 9th. Well, uh, they probably will, but uh, maybe not. Anyway, uh, the Russian. But listen to this. This is the way these. Why I'm just so disgusted with the way these Russians talk. The Russian foreign ministry demanded an explanation from Polish authorities and condemned the actions. Well, Poland certainly has a right to allow people in their country or not if they're just if they're not part of the European Union uh, they certainly have that right and why should motorcycle riders uh, have uh, have special privilege but anyway you know how these things go they said um, that the Polish authorities were trying to uh, were looking for op opportunistic reasons to rewrite history and in essence blaspheme the feats of those who saved Poland and the world from fascism, as though we wanted to be saved from from uh, fascism. But uh, they, you know, we have to go along with that story. And you know what I say? If if Russia were a decent country, they would condemn the bikers for wanting to go to Germany to celebrate Germany's defeat and and Russia's uh, victory. That's not a nice thing to do, as I already said. Okay, the uh, the Russian foreign ministry also said the border crossing was demonstratively strengthened by soldiers, you know, when these guys were trying to come through, as if they wanted to create the impression that the small group of Russian citizens going to Europe with the most noble aims present a threat to the Polish state. Noble aims? Right here we see that we have totally different worldviews and cannot ever combine politically with people who see the world and see history in such a totally different light than we do. Later, uh, the Russian foreign ministry said in a statement, it decisively condemned Poland's decision to bar entry for the bikers and said the move could be considered sacrilegious given the heroism shown by Soviet soldiers who fought against the Nazis during World War II. So, uh, you know, that's how they do, the Russians. They, they make the Red Army, which was a, the army of the Soviet Union, all godlike because they, they insist that 
that the, the who they, they fought the devil, which was what they call the Nazis and the fascists. So this is this is um, you know they, they pushed this and they pushed this and the idea that they would call it sacrilegious, they did the same thing when it came to taking down statues of Lenin and uh, other things that uh, that these other these um, former Soviet satellite states of theirs say and don't want that don't want uh, that in their countries anymore. They they keep calling it sacrilegious as though to be against. What the Soviet Union did for them, they they always have to say that they were liberated, they were saved, they were this and that. And as long as these countries go along with that idea, because they because they don't want to say anything nice about the Third Reich, and they want that to be the bad guy, they're caught in this trap of uh, of this historical trap where nobody, you know, everybody is uh, looks like a damn hypocrite, which is what they are. Yeah, we we really have to um, break free from this. We really have to come through uh, all these uh, all this false history that we're stuck with. Because uh, if we don't, we've just constantly got these these problems, and we can't even speak straightforwardly to one another. We can't even speak honestly to one another. Everybody's caught up in their in their narrative that they have to protect. And this leader of the Night Wolves says they will make the run to Berlin anyway, as they already indicated. Yeah, that's, that's their intention. There's a lot of other interesting things, but this is it for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to tell you that uh, next Monday on the Heretics Hour, I'm going to be interviewing Nick Collistrom, who has written the wonderful new book, Breaking the Spell, Myth and Reality. Naturally, it's about the Holocaust. And it's a great book. i was been wanting to interview him uh, all along, but we kept we somehow kept missing each other because the email addresses were wrong. Both I had a wrong one for him, he had a wrong one for me. <laughs> and nothing was working. So and I was very busy all that time, too, with other things. I thought, oh, well, just as well, I guess. So, But now uh, we've got it together, and... He will be uh, on next week's Heretics Hour program. That will be on May 5th. It's going to be very good. And then on May 11th, I'm going to have another new book writer, Warren B. Routledge, who is has just come out with his book, Holocaust High Priest, Ellie Weasel, Night, the Memory Cult, and the Rise of Revisionism. And uh, that's going to be a good one, too. I'm looking forward to both these programs and and this is where um, I'm going to spend my time for a while. Uh, I have been, you know, it's between, for me, it's between the Holocaust revisionism and Third Reich, World War II revisionism. And that's what I care about the most and what I want to spend my time on. I'm also doing some reading of some World War II uh, books that I wouldn't mind talking about also. But I'm just happy to have some time to read them. So I'm going to uh, say goodnight to you now. This is Carolyn Yeager, and this has been the Heretics Hour on April 27, 2015. See you next week, I hope.